Jonah's story exposes the struggle believers have to trust and obey in God's mission of grace. God loves his enemies, but do we? If we stop running from God, we will discover more than we can imagine. Well, I am here and I do work for Waypoint Church Partners. I want to tell you just a little bit uh, about what we do. Uh, what we attempt to do is simply to help churches pursue kingdom growth. And the way we do that is by helping leaders and churches navigate ministry. Uh, because ministry, uh, there are a lot of decisions that have to be made. And uh, what are we going to do next? And how are we going to go forward? And uh, anytime you bring about change into a church, uh, man, it is painful. Can I get an amen? on that. Uh, it is hard. Uh, I, I preached for 35 years at Chester Christian Church and, uh, and I want to tell you I was uh, I always I want to be on cutting edge. I, didn't, I was not a follower by nature, never have been. Uh, I always wanted to be the lead dog in the pack uh, because they have the best view, okay? And the best smell uh, and uh, all the rest are just followers. Uh, but I got to tell you, man, we blew past the worship wars. Uh, we were the first church... I in a hurry, we blew past uh, those. We're the first Christian church in Virginia to add one of those rascals in our place, a drum set. Uh, and you think everybody was thrilled with that? Are you kidding me? Uh, no, but we did, and we were attracting people that didn't want to go to anybody else's church, and that's why we did that and a lot of other things uh, that we did. Uh, and so we just like to help churches navigate ministry together for kingdom growth because it's not about the people that are here. It's, not, it's about the people that aren't here yet. Can I get an amen on that, all right? That's why we do what we do and why we're doing what we're doing this morning. Now, we do that in a couple ways at Waypoint. Number one is through church planting. And that's an exciting thing. Uh, and uh, we have planted churches since 1990 uh, from Frederick, Maryland to Charlotte, North Carolina, from Wilmington, uh, North Carolina uh, uh, to Bristol, Tennessee. Uh, the next two churches that are coming up this spring we're really excited about. Uh, Jacob's Well is going to open in Midlothian. That's my neck of the woods in Richmond, uh, Virginia. And they're going to be opening uh, on Easter Sunday. And we're excited about that. But we're also thrilled uh, about our first church in South Carolina uh, to be planted. Kinetic Christian Church is going to open the end of, about the end of March, and we're thrilled about that and really excited about what God's going to do there. But something else that we do is provide church services. There are a number of church planting uh, groups in the Christian church uh, around the United States, but we are the only church planting group that focuses huge effort to existing churches just like Cornerstone. You see, we want not just new churches to grow. We want every church to grow. And so we build into churches wherever we're given the opportunity because we want to see kingdom growth happen right here in Chatham and other areas around the state. And so we provide about 18 different services or so. Uh, yesterday morning I was here doing a, 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 a prayer summit, uh, an Embrace Prayer Summit, and that's one of the uh, programs, uh, products that we provide, lots of other things that we do just to help your leaders and your church just navigate ministry together just a little bit better uh, for kingdom growth. Uh, I'm going to be back at the table, our table back in the lobby after uh, church is over. Uh, if you'd like to uh, receive our newsletter, there's a little card like this back there. You can fill that out and drop it on the table and we'll make sure 
that you get involved with our newsletter. There are a few more sets of sunglasses back there, I think. Uh, and uh, I don't want to take any of them home uh, with me, so uh, you're free to take them uh, if you'd like to. And that would be cool if you'd like to do that. Now, what's a waypoint? Waypoint church services, uh, church partners. What's a waypoint? A waypoint is simply a place on a map, a point on a map that you navigate through to get to your destination. When I was coming here uh, to Cornerstone yesterday, I was coming from Salem, Virginia, and I put in my phone, my GPS, uh, your address, and guess what? Uh, my lady uh, told me where to turn every time. Now, my wife says I don't follow instructions sometimes, and there are times she'll say, Neil, you need to listen to me. And then she'll say, you don't even listen to her, much less me, you know. And, uh, but I, I turn, go here, turn there. Those are waypoints along the way. We like to help churches discover the necessary waypoints to get from where you are now to where you want to be. Now the question is, what's the destination for the church? Any church, Cornerstone, what's the destination? Jesus gives the destination not just for your church but for every church. In Matthew 28 and verse 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me, Jesus says, talking about himself. And he said, Because of that, I am commanding you. Not a suggestion. I'm commanding you, church, to go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize people in my name. And I want you to encourage them to be obedient to me in every area. And he said, if you will do that, I promise I will be with you. Now, the issue is many churches will say yes to that, but don't really intend on fulfilling that at all. And what I want you to understand is that your job here at Cornerstone is to add one more picture and one more picture and one more picture and one more picture to the mosaic before you. That mosaic is a mosaic of 97 people that were baptized in Christ last year at New Life Christian Church, one of our church plants in Centerville, Virginia. And they're doing an unbelievable job of uh, uh, introducing brand new people to Jesus Christ. And that's our destination. That's our destination. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, if we took a vote today, uh, and the vote was on this, should Christians share their faith with people who know Jesus, I guarantee you we would get a huge majority of folks to say, yes, I believe that Christians ought to share their faith with people who don't know Jesus so that they come to know Jesus. But if I were to ask a second question, okay, so we're going to gather here at 5 o'clock this afternoon and we're going to cut out and go into uh, the town of Chatham and we're going to start telling people about Jesus. You know what? Everybody would say, can't make it. Sorry, there's a ball game on tonight. You know, I've got I've to watch. I am so thrilled that I am here today on Super Bowl Sunday because at least I had something to look forward to today. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'm not a Patriots fan. I'm boring. Over and over. We're going to have 
have a Super Bowl party at my daughter's house tonight. But the truth of the matter is, I think it's going to be a say yes to the dress party instead of a Super Bowl party, probably, you know. And that'd probably be more fun except for the commercials. I get that. Uh, I can remember the first time that I was ever given the challenge uh, to, uh, to uh, talk to somebody about Jesus. Uh, I was a, a freshman at Johnson Bible College, and I was taking a personal evangelism class. And during that personal evangelism class, one of the assignments was that week we had to go out, find somebody that we did not know, that uh, did not know Jesus, and share the gospel with that person. Okay, that was the assignment. Now, I got to tell you, that scared me to death. Because I am not the type of person to just jump in with somebody I do not know and start talking about something that I, you know, uh, with anything, uh, about anything with them. But the assignment was given. A bunch of us jumped in the car, drove down to the University of Tennessee campus, went to the student union, and walked in. And our, our thought was, we're going to find lost people. You know, at the college campus, everybody here is lost, you know. And so we're going to find uh, lost people. So I walked in. I looked around. This is the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Uh, not lying in church, okay. And, and, but I looked around, and I saw the geekiest guy I could find over here. Had a pen pal, you know, tape on his... Uh, glasses probably I don't know but I, I, I sat over here all by himself a loser nobody was wanting to talk to him and I walked over to him and uh, I said uh, uh, would you like to know Jesus as savior of your life and he said no and I said whoo glad that's over with you know and uh, so I went back and wrote my paper I tried real hard and he said no I guess he's going to go to hell uh, you know I, I don't have I don't have a clue well, the truth is only about 5 or 6% of us have the gift of evangelism. Those are the people that could sell ice to an Eskimo. They could walk up to a perfect stranger and start up a conversation. That ain't me. Can I get somebody else to say, that ain't me either, all right? You know, it's just, that's just not me. I'm not wired that way. So this morning, what I want to talk about is evangelism for the rest of us. Personal evangelism for the rest of us. For the rest of us that cannot walk up to perfect strangers and say, hey, I want you to know Jesus, the Savior of your life. You need to know Him. So we're talking about for those 5 or 6% of people that are here, you can snooze now. I'm talking to everybody else, okay? That just feels uncomfortable sharing your faith with somebody else. What I want to do today is talk about how to do that. Give you a very practical means of doing that. The title of my message this morning is Two Prayers in a Fish Belly. Two Prayers in a Fish Belly. I hope you have your Bible or your phone and can turn with me to the book of Jonah, the first chapter, the verse 17, last verse of chapter uh, 1. And we're going to read together uh, Jonah's prayer. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a prayer of eight or nine verses, and we're just going to read it together. It starts out this way, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep and the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurl me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threaten me. The deep 
uh, surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath uh, barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from, the God, from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grace, uh, shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let's pray together. Father God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would take uh, the words that you have inspired in this section of Scripture, and you'll speak truth into each one of our lives. Father, every single one of us, has lost people in our Nineveh, in our realm, our a realm of life, that we know that uh, unless something dramatic happens, before Jesus returns or they die, they're going to spend eternity in hell. Father, I pray this morning that you will convict us, that you will instruct us about how we can do something about their eternal destination. That's a prayer in Jesus' name. Now, this morning, what I want to do, I want to give you four uh, truths about being in a fish belly. Anybody ever been in a fish belly before? Anybody swallowed up by a fish? I didn't think so. Uh, but I want to give you four truths about a fish belly. The first is that every single one of us uh, has found ourselves there sometime along the line. Everybody faces fish bellies. All through the Bible, we see people stop in their tracks by extraordinary events that just shut them down and brought them to their knees before God. For Moses, who was the prince of Egypt, who spent 40 years as a shepherd on the far side of the wilderness, he was stopped by a burning bush and fell to his knees and threw off his shoes before God. Daniel, the prophet of God, was stopped dead in his tracks in a lion's den and came to uh, uh, the decision that he was going to follow God no matter what. A woman in the Gospels, she's recorded several times. She had an issue of blood that lasted for 12 years, causing her to be unclean, preventing her from being able to worship in a public place, was stopped dead in her tracks when the Savior touched her and she was freed from her ailments. Now, fish bellies come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. You've never been swallowed up by a fish, but you have heard perhaps these words. It's cancer. I'm sorry to tell you that your child was killed in a car wreck last night. You suffer chronic pain that has been with you for years, and the doctors say they can't figure out how to do anything about it. You'll probably have it all your life. You've lost a job, your career. You've had a moral failure. You've gone through divorce, or on and on and on and on and on. What I want to guarantee you, and I don't like this, what I want to guarantee you is that every single one of us are either in a fish belly right now, or we've been in one, or we will be in one in the very near future. Can I get, Neil, will you shut your mouth right now? That's not good news. I get that. I don't like that. But that's the honest to goodness truth. Truth number two is that God oftentimes uses fish bellies to shift our focus really from ourselves to our Nineveh. God uses fish bellies to shift our focus from ourselves to our Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh, you learned last week, was the capital of Assyria. It was known for its cruelty and uh, violence. Uh, I have gr- good friends, and uh, in, in where I used to ch- uh, preach, we had a lot of military individuals, and I have several Marine friends that spent a good m- amount of time deployed in Mosul, Iraq. That is, a, is, a, is a, uh, the city of Nineveh today. God called Jonah to a very narrow task. Then chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, this is what God says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up against me. So God, uh, but Jonah heard that, and rather than accepting God's decision or command for him to go and preach the gospel uh, in Nineveh, instead, verse 3 says, he turned in the opposite direction, and rather than traveling 500 miles to uh, uh, Nineveh, he turned to try to escape from God uh, as far away as he could possibly go. Now, in chapter 1, I think Bob described last uh, week how, how that uh, Jonah was fleeing, running from God, but uh, God sent this massive storm, and it was so bad that all of the sailors went to their knees in prayer, praying to their God. Everybody prays. Everybody prays. And they were praying to their God, saying, would you deliver us from this horrendous storm? It was determined that Jonah was the cause of the storm and that God was just teed off against Jonah because he was running from them. And so the sailors decided they were going to pick Jonah up and throw him into the ocean. And as soon as they did, much to their horror and satisfaction probably, the seas went flat. Now at that verse 17 says, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow up Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, why did God provide the fish? One, to rescue Jonah. But two, to cause Jonah to shift his focus off of himself onto his mission field. Nineveh. Now, I've never been swallowed by a fish. But I've been swallowed by life. When I was two years old, and I'm almost 64 next, in a couple weeks I'll be 64, you do the math. Six days before my third birthday, my daddy got up from the breakfast table with my brother and my mom, and he went upstairs and he took his life. I got to tell you, that swallowed me up. In many ways, still swallows me alive today. But I want you to understand that that swallowing up really was one of the focal points, one of the things that caused me to even begin thinking about doing ministry. It was part of my calling. About 15 years ago, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, non-malignant brain cancer, which was good news for me because it meant I had a brain, okay? And, and, uh, but I had uh, uh, back here acoustic neuroma, a tumor about the size of a ping pong ball, always uh, non-cancer. And they went in, they did the surgery, had some complications. A week later, they had to do a second surgery. After the first surgery, I thought... This brain surgery, this ain't so bad. You know, I hurt a little bit, but it's not so bad. But after the second surgery, when my surgeon told me, Neil, we don't want you uh, rolling over in bed. We don't want you setting up. We don't want you standing up by yourself. A nurse has to do that for you. And I thought, I'll show you. And I realized I didn't have the strength to roll over in bed. I realized I was one sick dude. One night, middle of the night, 
two, three o'clock in the morning. I don't know what time it was. I, uh, I, I woke up. Man, I was hurting. I, I've never hurt like this before. You know, doctors always say, rank your pain from one to ten. Have you had a doctor say that to you before? Uh, before this experience, I would have said, oh, yeah, this is a strong eight or nine, you know. I felt a ten level pain once in my life, one night in my life. And other than that one night, I would say I've never been above a, a three or maybe a three and a half, no matter what else has ever happened to me. I'm not one to say quickly, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. But I heard from the Lord speaking very clearly into my life that night. The nurse had gone out. She was calling my surgeon, middle of the night, two, three o'clock in the morning, to figure out what he wanted to do. And while she was gone, it may have been 30 seconds, it may have been 30 minutes. I don't know. I was hurting so bad. I could not pray. And the Lord spoke to me as plainly as he could possibly speak to me, plainer than you could speak. And he said, Neil, do you trust me? And of course, I said, yes, Lord, I trust you. That, of course, I would say that. But then he made the critical st second statement to me when he said, but do you trust me whether I take the pain away or not? And it was in that fish belly that I learned to trust God in a way that I never trusted him before. And that led to huge, huge opportunities for me in the future. Four years ago, my wife Carol, sweet wife Carol, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And we were battling through chemo, and it was awful with that. And, and, I, and I lost my job during that period of time. And we didn't know what we were going to do. We just didn't, didn't have a clue. We didn't know what on earth we were going to do. But in the midst of all of that, God opened the door for me in an unbelievable way to step in the role that I do now. And uh, my boss at Waypoint said, Neil, you've been hurt uh, in ministry. I think it'd be good for you to come alongside other ministers because they hurt too. And I have the privilege of being to able to do that right now. Now, there's a lesson in all of this. And that lesson is that God always wants to use our fish belly experiences to speak into our lives and refocus us on our Nineveh. Now you're saying to yourself, if God ever calls me to go 500 miles on a mission trip uh, to reach lost people for Jesus, I'm all in. Can I say to you, no, you're not. I know that. Don't lie in church. Uh, you won't even go across the street to talk to your neighbor about Jesus. Why on earth would I want you to think that you do that if you're 500 miles away? But I want you to understand that God has a very narrow focus on who it is that he wants you to reach with the gospel. A very narrow focus. And I want you to leave a finger right here and Jonah, put a bookmark, and I want, because we're going to come back in just a moment. And I want you to turn with me over to the book of Acts, the 17th chapter, because there's a verse of scripture in Acts chapter 17 that clearly defines each of our Ninevehs. Clearly defines each of our Ninevehs, those individuals that God wants us, wants us as individuals to reach with the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, listen to what it says uh, about God's decision about where you live and where I live. It says, from one man, that's Adam, God made all the nations, all the nations, the United States, Syria, 
Venezuela made all the nations uh, uh, in, uh, that they should inhabit the whole earth. Watch this. And God marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. You know what it says? The United States came into existence about 200 years ago, a little over, because God wanted us to at that time in this location. Have you ever wondered why you live in the town you live in? You ever wonder why you live during the time that you live in? You ever wonder why you have the job that you have? You ever wonder why you go to the school that you go to school at? You ever wonder why you play golf with the guys that you play golf with or the gals that you play golf? You ever wonder why you're in the group of people that you are around every single day? You know why? God marked out your appointed time in history and the boundaries of your land. You know why you live on the road that you live on, the streets you live on? You know why you live in the apartment building that you live in? Do you know why you work in the shop or the school that you work in? Do you, you know why? It's not just by mistake. It's not just happenstance. It wasn't even your choice altogether. You know why? Turn back to Jonah, the fourth chapter, and the last verse there, and read what it says. God speaking to Jonah and says, Shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left hand from the right hand? Lost as they possibly can be. You know why you live where you live? Because there are lost people around you. Lost people that if Jesus comes back right now today, they would spend an eternity in hell. An eternity in hell. I wish it weren't true, but the Bible teaches us that way more people are going to spend eternity in hell than the people that are going to go to heaven. You check it out. The way to that, to hell, is broad and wide. And most everybody goes there. But narrow is the way to go to eternal life in heaven. So why do you live where you live? Because God has lost people there that he just wants to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And your fish belly experiences help God refocus you on the lostness of the people that live around you. Truth number three, there are two types of prayers that people pray in fish bellies. Two types of prayers. Everybody prays the first type of prayer, my kingdom prayer. Everybody prays this. You know what a my kingdom prayer is? It's a prayer that Jonah prays in this, uh, in this section of Scripture. Now, we're going to read this chapter, this prayer again. And what I want you to do is this, okay? There are three words that I want you to count. 
the word I, me, or my. All right? And as we read it together, I want you to count how many times you read one of those three words. Okay? I, me, or my. Uh, and I will tell you there are a bunch of them. Okay? Uh, so you may have to kick your shoes off and use your toes too. All right? To count. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of them. But I want you to count every time I read the word I, me, or my. I want you to count and tell me. I know how many there are. I've counted them. All right? So I want uh, you to count. If our translations are the same... Uh, uh, then it will be uh, the same number. Now, let's read together. In my distress, that's number one, okay? Got that? Number one. In my distress, I, number two, called to the Lord. And he answered me. Three in the first sentence. From the, de uh, uh, from the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my prayer, my uh, cry. You hurled me into the depths of the, of the very uh, heart of the seas. And the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said... I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look uh, again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, and the depth surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank. The earth beneath me, uh, beneath, barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. <clears throat> When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Okay, were you counting? How many are there? 25. 25 times... Jonah talks about himself. Now remember, God had sent Jonah on a mission. I want you to go and preach to Nineveh. What do you notice about Jonah's prayer? It was totally focused on me. I, my, and never one word about Nineveh. Not one. But friends, I want you to understand that most of our prayers are that way. This is by far the most self-centered centered prayer in all the Bible, by, by far. But I want you to understand that most prayers, uh, that this prayer focused on God, get me out of this mess. Now, why did uh, uh, that, that happen? Well, two reasons. Number one, just practically, nobody likes to be in a mess. It, it, has there anybody ever heard from the doctor, I'm sorry, it's bad news for you, and say, yes, I'm so glad about that. God, thank you for it. No, uh, you know, you might want to say that because you're in church, you want to look religious, but no, you don't. You want to say, God, get me out of this mess. Why'd you do this? I don't like it, nothing about it. And that makes sense. The Apostle Paul prayed that way. Remember, he had the thorn in the flesh three times. He said, God, can you take this away from me? And God said, no. Remember Jesus on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane? started out and said, God, if there's any other way for you to uh, save the world uh, and, and bypass the cross, would, your will be, would you make that happen? We pray that all the time. 
But there's a, another reason, and I think it's much more diabolical. I believe it goes to the very heart of one of the temptations that Satan makes against Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, when he said, Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. All of them. They can all be yours. All you've got to do is what? Bow down and worship me. And that's what Satan says to us every day. Your kingdom should grow. Your income should grow. Your kingdom should be bigger and better. And by the way, if God really is who he says he is and he really loves you, certainly you shouldn't hurt. And God should take all of those things away from you. You ever heard Satan say that to you? And he says it all the time. But I want you to understand there's another type of prayer that comes out of this, uh, this uh, belly of a whale, though the prayer is never prayed. Never, never enters Jonah's mind to pray this prayer. But Jesus does. And it's what I call God's kingdom prayer. God's kingdom prayer. Now I want you to notice that Jesus was the one who prayed that. Garden of Gethsemane, I already referred to that. And I, Jesus said, Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it pass from me. But then Jesus adds this kingdom prayer when he says what? Not my will be done, but what? Your will be done. <coughs> Folks, if you know Jesus is Savior of your life, if your sins have been washed away, that would never have happened had Jesus not prayed that prayer. That kingdom prayer for you and for for me, and I can't believe that he did. Jesus' ministry was constantly about God's kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 5, there's a description of how Jesus started out his preaching. And really, we read this over and over and over again. Uh, and it was the very heart of what Jesus' preaching was all about. And Jesus preached, uh, uh, it says there that Jesus, when he preached, he preached, uh, re repent, because the kingdom of God has come. Think about the parables that Jesus shared. And almost every single one of them that start out this way, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus was constantly about the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus' disciples ask him, would you teach us how to pray? It's not surprising that Jesus prayed first and uh, preeminently about the kingdom of God. Remember the model prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your what? Kingdom come. Could you imagine how lost lives would be different right here in Chatham, Virginia, if the kingdom of God really came into those individuals' lives? Can you imagine how Cornerstone Church Christ would be different if the kingdom of God permeated Every single thing that you do. So I want to talk to you in the last few minutes that I have. I want to talk to you about the most practical way that I can give people who do not have the gift of evangelism. You can't sell iced Eskimos. You're scared to death to talk to anybody. I want to give you three words to allow you to bring your neighbors to the foot of the cross. All right? Uh, write these three words down with me. The first word is prayer. Of course, we're talking about prayer this morning. The second word is the word care. And the third word is the word share. Prayer, care, share. 
Now, I do this in my neighborhood right now. Uh, I, we, we live in a brand new neighborhood. There are 105 houses in my neighborhood. How do I know that? Because every morning when I go out and walk, I, I uh, circle and I pray for all 105 uh, houses and the people that are there. And I'm praying that the kingdom of God would, would come uh, into, those, into those homes. Now, but we lived, uh, let me tell you an example uh, of our old neighborhood. We lived in an old, old neighborhood uh, for a long time. And there were 11 houses on my street, 11 houses on my street, okay? And so I decided what I was going to do, uh, I, I was going to uh, start praying every day for my, uh, uh, you know, neighbors that were living on my street, uh, just those individuals. And so I wrote their names down, you know, so that I could pray for them every day. And I realized I didn't know all of them. I, I mean, I'm a preacher, I ought to know them, but I didn't know all of them by name. I knew him by how I referred to it. We had this guy that would ride his bicycle. I was a bike rider. Man, I wanted to go distance. He would ride around circles on my cul-de-sac, just round, round, round. And I, I just thought that was goofy. Well, uh, his wife was battier than a loony bird. She, re- I mean, she was strange, uh, a strange bird. And I didn't know their names, so I just talked about the bicycle guy and the loony bird. That's the way I wrote their names down in my prayer journal. And I prayed for them every day, I'm telling you. I prayed for them every day and everybody else... Uh, around my street, all 10 neighbors. All Now, I got to tell you, uh, before I started praying, uh, uh, Carol, my wife and I went to church, and our next door neighbor, she went to church, nobody else. No, nobody else, ever, in 20 years of us living there, went to church. That was it. That was zero. That was all. So I started praying for all my neighbors. And I'm not sure exactly all that I prayed for them, but I, I just prayed, God, would you cause the kingdom of God to uh, come into their lives, and then I started praying, God, would you find, uh, help me find ways, nice ways to care for them, you know, I, I don't know what that meant, I was thinking, uh, you know, I, I might bake cookies for them, you know, and, uh, and uh, then go on the Great British Baking Show, you know, and, and uh, I don't know what that meant, I was just going to be nicer to my neighbors, and I just wanted to care for them, just kumbaya kind of care for them, that's not what God had in mind. Now, I got to tell you, on the house that's beside us, uh, Scott and Kim Lewis had been there from day one for us, and they had two middle school daughters, uh, Jessica and, uh, uh, and Rebecca, and they lived on this side. And two doors over from us, there was a rental house, new neighbors all the time in a rental house. And at this time, uh, the rental house there had five kids in it, five kids in it. And they would hook up after school every day. And we lived at the end of a cul-de-sac. All they had to do is walk out the end of their driveway, walk out the end of their driveway, and they could meet. And, man, they had a cul-de-sac to play in. You know, they, they, could, they could have a ball. But you know how they met? By the way, I forgot to tell you, in the front of my yard, I had made a flower bed in the front of my yard, planted flowers and shrubbery, azaleas, and all that kind of stuff in the middle of my yard. And every afternoon, like clockwork, man, school was over, and here these five girls came, trump, 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 and these two girls, trump, 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 and guess where they met? Dead in the middle of my flower bed. I couldn't believe it. I, I just, I didn't know more. I watched this, the matter I got, and I wanted to go smack a mama and say, you know, can't you teach your kids better manners than that? And I fumed and I fumed. I prayed. And God broke my heart with this concept. Wheeler, you are the biggest hypocrite in the world. Because you stand up and tell people every Sunday that they ought to love their neighbor. 
You love your stupid flower bed more than you love these girls and where they're going to spend eternity. Now, the five girls left. I don't ever know what happened to them, but they moved. But as I was just figuring out, you know, I just need to start caring. Love them. Just really love them. Not about doing nice things, but really love them, my neighbors. Gary and uh, Carol down at the bottom of the street, uh, they were a little bit older than us, waved me down one day on the way to work, and they said, Hey, Neil, what time's church start your place? Could we come? They didn't go to anybody's church, period. Could we come? What do we need to wear? Suit and tie, you know, dress. Oh, come in blue jeans, you'll be fine. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, so they came and they sat on the back, very back row, very back row. And for the next three years, Gary and Carol were on the very back row, but they bought a Bible. They asked me what my Bible was. They bought a Bible and they began reading the Word. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they were there. Now, I never ever shared an invitation for them to come to church. I told them, y'all messed up the illustration. You know, you came too quick. I didn't have a chance to invite you to church yet, but you came anyway. Scott, my next door neighbor next to me, and, and, and Scott was an alcoholic, and, and uh, man, he kind of lived a rough life. You can just look at it. You could see in his eyes and everything about him. He lived a rough life. But we were out mowing the grass one day, and, and he stopped me. He said, Neil, I should have had my girls in church all this time, and I haven't been. You think we could come tomorrow? Yes, God, y'all could come tomorrow. Several months later, I had the privilege of baptizing Scott, Dad, and two of the daughters into Christ. Why? Not because... I was a good inviter because I didn't even invite them. They invited themselves. And why did that happen? All because God slowed me down long enough to look seriously at my life and say, Neil, you are such a whining hypocrite. And you don't really care about the Nineveh around you that I care about. And you need to do something about that. I would encourage you with those three words, and everybody here can put this into practice. Everybody, everybody can write down the names of your neighbors or the people that you work with, especially that jerk that you can't stand. Now, don't say you don't have one of them. Everybody does, all right? Everybody does. His name, her name too, and start praying for them every single day that God's kingdom would shine into their life. Then ask God to help you start caring for them, really caring for them, loving them deeply, whatever that means, and then offer them an invitation to come to this place. Man, I want to tell you all, you know what a great place you worship in. Be excited about it and invite your friends to come with you regularly. Do that.
Now, everybody here received a key similar to this when you came in. I just want you to take your key out. and You can take your key ring out if you want to. Ultimately, what I'd like for you to do is add that blank key to your key ring, all right? Uh, and if uh, anybody did not receive a key, anybody, I don't have a key. Are there are some... Uh, Bob, would you just make sure, uh, uh, come by, never mind, come by my table and I'll make sure that you get a key, all right? If you didn't get one, come by my table, I'll, I'll be out there after, after church and you can get a key. Now, there are two keys on uh, this, uh, on my key ring. I keep this all the time. Actually, there are three. This is my car key. Uh, these, but there are two keys on my key ring that I keep all the time to remind me of this principle that we've talked about this morning. One key that I gave you is a blank key. All right, it's a blank key. Let me ask you this question. What door will a blank key open? Not one. It won't open squat, okay? Nothing, period. You know what this key will open for me? My front door. You know why? Because it has the right cuts in it to fit the lock on my front door, and when I turn it, it will open the door right away. Let's pull all this together and shut down with prayer. I believe with all of my heart that when we're facing the fish bellies of our life, and we're all facing them, or will sometime very, very soon, that God oftentimes uses those events in our lives to cut us deeply. I told you about my dad committing suicide, do you think that is not a deep cut in my life? Oh man, so deep. You think when my wife had cancer that that wasn't a deep cut in my life? Maybe the deepest of all because I would have swapped places with her in a moment if I could because I hated seeing her hurt so bad and so sick. And that cut my life so deeply. But can I tell you this? No amount of praying, God, keep me safe and happy. Don't let anything bad happen in my life. Take away all the pain in my life. That won't open diddly. But my wife on Tuesday will walk into the infusion center that she received her breast cancer infusions from. Uh, and some grumpy old man will say to her, she volunteers every Tuesday, and some grumpy old man will say, you don't know what I'm going through. To which she'll say, and I don't know how she does this without crying. Four years ago, I was in that very same bed, and the grumpy old cuss says, let's talk a little bit. Why? The cuts. Would you use this as just a reminder to pray? Pray for your neighbors and your friends, your Nineveh. Would you watch for opportunities where God's cutting you? Because chances are that's the very place that God wants to use you most with people around you. Would you learn to care for them? Would you learn to share invitations to come to church? And I promise that God will bless you. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.